Welcome to the Hero Hut Podcast, bringing you stories of service. Today, we're talking to Eric Upchurch, Army helicopter mechanic and founder of Active Duty Passive Income, a real estate training program for veterans. And now here's our host, Jacob Hagstrom. I'm joined today by Eric Upchurch, who was a Army veteran and a staff sergeant in the 160th Aviation Regiment. He's also the co-founder of Active Duty Passive Income. Eric, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me on. Glad to be here. Yeah, of course. So let's get started all the way at the very beginning. We're going to talk about Active Duty Passive Income eventually, but I'd like to get your uh, ideas about what made you want to join the military? What made you make that decision? What kinds of things were going on in your life when you decided to join the Army? So my path to making that decision was a, as I would imagine it's probably similar to a lot of people in that uh, I didn't know what I wanted to do with my life. Um, I was always kind of jack of all trades and was constantly in the jobs that I had had. I'd always moved up to a management position and, um, but not to like say, Ooh, look at me, a manager. No, I, what I mean by that is I was listening to who I was quite often. And I didn't really realize that until later on in my life, but I'd always wanted to lead people. And, mm-hmm. and that's what I mean by that. And so um, my wife and I, wife now, but girlfriend in college, um, we were discussing what my future, our f- potential future was going to look like. And I graduated. So I graduated from UC Santa Barbara. So I had a bachelor's degree and I was, I, the job I chose was, I was a bellman at the Four Seasons in Santa Barbara, which is a great, great job, you know, mm-hmm. great to beautiful views. But she's like, what, what are you doing? You know, like she's trying to figure out her future, you know, right. as well. Where's the path of this? Well, yeah, like what's going? your direction so I can you make these decisions. So then I was a heavy equipment operator. I just said, well, man, I think you can make like 29 bucks an hour as a, as a loader operator, you know, whatever. So I, so I went through an apprenticeship and I was operating this heavy equipment and people on the job site were like looking at me going, what are you doing, man? Like you have a college degree. Why are you here? And they kind of like, I wasn't really welcomed into that. And so I just made me think, mm-hmm. why am I here? What am I doing? So fast forward a little bit, my wife and I are driving back down to Santa Barbara from the San Francisco Bay area. And we had a discussion and that discussion led to, well, I think I should go talk to a recruiter and I'm not somebody to jump into something without doing a ton of research. So after talking to the air force, the Navy, I even talked to the coast guard and all of them were kind of all roads led back to the army at that point. This is 2004. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, so the army was mo- most receptive or the army was uh, giving yeah. the, the type of job that you wanted or what was Yeah. It? So that's right. I mean, ultimately the, the army had, I think 212 jobs available at the time or something like that. And the Navy or the Navy, I believe had a program called the blue, blue to green. They were actually pushing people out of the Navy at the time to go to the, to the army. And um, so I didn't even check with the Marine Corps. Don't hold it against me. Um, I just, I just really wanted something that was going to translate potentially later onto a job, but also something that I was just felt like I was at least minimally passionate about. And, uh, so I fell into this world of, of, of aviation, um, Mm -hmm. and picked a job that I want. I got the high grad bonus because I was a college uh, graduate and I chose, this is where it isn't probably typical, but with a degree, I chose to be enlisted and I did that again, and I, this is why I preface this um, discussion by saying I'm, a ma- I'm always a manager of people and building things and teams, because choosing to be enlisted to me was natural because I, I figured, well, as a 24-year-old, 
I can go and and possibly mentor people who are younger that haven't been to college or or you know don't know which way is up when they're 18 years old, right? Mm-hmm. And so um, and there's some benefits to that too. I mean they they paid off all of my college debt. Um, so was that pretty that, substantial. You don't have to give an exact. Over, figure. It was over 50 grand. Really? Um, yeah. Wow. So and that was just for two years at, mm-hmm. at UCSB. Um, so. So that was a great benefit. And I started as an E4. I, um, day one at basic training, I was an E4. And um, I got a lot of weird looks for that. People were looking at me like, what are you prior enlisted? Like, why are you here as an E4? Um, and I, were there, my goal, other, the, were there any other uh, specialists at basic training with you or were you, you the only? There were none in my battalion. Mm-hmm. So it was really... Um, you know, it was, it was strange and I did get a lot of weird looks, but also, and I went in there, I wanted to just be gray, man. Like I was at this point in my life where like, okay, uh, I just need to hack through this, you know, program and like get on to my next thing. And I had a wedding planned in a few months and I'm like, I just got to get there. You know, like, oh, you there, were getting married, right? Yeah. Basically. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> I, when I, I had proposed and then I enlisted and mm-hmm. we had a wedding planned, um, exactly six months after, so I enlisted January 24th. Our wedding was July 31st. So had I missed a test, a PT test, a written test, sprained an ankle, pissed off the wrong person, whatever it was, right. and you get recycled back a class, I would have missed my own wedding. <laughs> and the military doesn't care about that. No. And there was no. no plan B. So I was squared away. We'll just put it that way. I was squared away. You were but, motivated to make it. Yeah. I uh, had to. And so, um, this is, you're thinking about joining in the end of 2004. You eventually start basic training yeah. in 2005. Right. Uh, did anyone in your family serve in the military or did your family support your decision? Yeah, family definitely supported. My mom was terrified, of course. She still has nightmares about me deploying and all this other stuff, which we can mm-hmm. talk about. But uh, my father and his twin brother were both um, sheriff, deputy sheriffs my entire life. Um, had an uncle in the DEA, another one in the FBI. Another uncle served in the Marine Corps. Cousins were police officers. And I was kind of like the kid who was like, I'm going to, you know, I grew up in Iowa and I'm like, I'm going to move to California and see what that does, you know? Right. <laughs> but so, I don't know, I would... S- I would say, I guess it's in my blood, but I, I don't feel, I didn't feel like it was. I, my, my dad was intentionally telling me not to be in law enforcement of any kind. So um, I didn't feel like there was pressure to do that. I just fell into it. Um, mm-hmm. So that was uh, uh, something I, you know, I was, that period of time, that six month period from basic training to advanced individual, you know, AIT, uh, I was like deer in headlights thinking that, you know, that one five minute call you get with your spouse at the pay phone and, and AIT, I'm sitting there going like, yeah, I, I passed my test. I, th- I think I'm still going to make it. I think I'm still going to make it, you know? Right. Yep. Did you, uh, did you talk to your uncle about his experience in the Marines or did you feel like once you got to basic training, this was like a totally new world? Uh, did you ever have this feeling of like, what did I get myself into? Yeah, I, I had no, uh, I, I didn't even talk to my uncle very much. He, he actually retired in the Philippines after retiring from, from the Marine Corps. So, uh, didn't really even know him, um, very well. And, uh, so yeah, it was just all new and it was an experience, uh, you know, I was interested in and felt like I could, you know, persist through it. And I knew it was, you know, I knew I like structure and, and I always worked. I worked from the time I was 12 years old in the cornfields of Iowa and, so work was not something that I was afraid to do, you know? Mm-hmm. 
I think that's yeah. a big part of basic training. If they can tell that you're a hard worker, you'll get a lot of breaks. Where so you were you successful in kind of keeping your head down and blending in in basic? Hell training? no, I no. I mean, I wish. Uh, but as a as a 24 year old E4 who like I wasn't there to mess around. I wasn't causing any problems. I was just passing my tests and you know getting good scores on everything and you know trying to talk to the drill sergeant about what you know whatever we need to do around the barracks to not have to get smoked that day. Whatever it was, you know, just like how do I get through this 9 week period or whatever it is, you know? So yeah, it was uh not possible to be gray man. I was really hoping to be, but I stood out like a sore thumb. So Right. Yeah, understandable. Uh where did you do basic training? Jackson, Jackson. Jackson. Okay. Yeah. Um, and then, so from there, where do you go for your first duty station? So first duty station, um, I guess you go to AIT well, after that, right? Yeah. So AIT, yeah, I was going to just kind of go back to AIT. Um, so AIT was Fort Eustis, Virginia, so aviation uh, logistics. Uh, I was an aircraft structural repair by trade. And I just thought, okay, well, that sounds Sounds interesting. I work on aviation. Seems pretty safe, you know, like, all right, this is cool. And then, so I go to AIT and it's the same story. Uh, I'm like just trying to get through it. And, but so there I ended up as the distinguished honor graduate because I was so intently not getting injured and passing all my PT tests and, you know, acing all of my tests and studying and doing what the things I needed to do, not going out and partying on the weekend and getting, you know, in trouble like everybody else was doing and all that. Right. Um, so These tests that you're mentioning, were they like written tests or was it like you actually had to fix something on an aircraft and demonstrate? Is it that? both? I mean, there's oh. written, yeah, you have to learn the, all of the TMs and how to use the, you know, the manuals and things, but then, yeah, it's actually fixing aircraft as well. Um, and, and you have very, in the, in the aircraft structural world, you have very like 64, seven inch is your tolerance. So it, it was really nerve wracking. I mean, mm-hmm. the thickness of your thumbnail, when you're putting on a new patch, you've got to get every little rivet and every little piece of metal has to be within a 64th of an inch or, you know, the way, the way we were taught is, or the aircraft could, could crash, you know, mm-hmm. I mean, they really went in, went into that much detail and like put that much emphasis on it and people were getting recycled and. And people were failing out and moving on because you have a structural uh, problem with an aircraft and you lose a crew. Mm-hmm. And so, were you uh, specialized on any specific type of aircrafts in AIT, or they were teaching you to no. fix any? And so, these are, are army helicopters that you're working on. Yeah, any it, really anything that flies, anything that's made out of uh, metal or composites um, that didn't really matter. They used yeah, it was army, so they would we would work on Blackhawks and Chinooks in in the in the schoolhouse, but. Um, ultimately it's all the same type of structure, whether it's a fixed wing or, or rotary wing. So, um, so, so then because I was top of the class, what I didn't realize until I was a staff sergeant later on is what special operations gets to do is go and pick the top person from each class and say, we're putting them on orders right away to come to us first. So I got orders like weeks and weeks before most of my class did. And, um, my drill sergeant goes, Hey, you got orders. And I'm like, I don't, okay. How did that happen so fast? And this is great. Cause now I can tell my wife who <laughs> we're about to get married and move somewhere. She, she can prepare a little bit more. Right. But, um, but so it was, so you didn't apply said, for the 160. No. They came and chose you as the yeah. undergrad from AIT. Exactly. Okay, wow. And, and so I, I didn't even know that they existed. I didn't know 
I wasn't planning on special operations. I wasn't planning that path whatsoever. Didn't know they existed as a unit. So, um, I mean, I had heard of, uh, the, you know, the movie Black Hawk Down. I knew that was some cool black helicopter or something, but I didn't know. I'd never heard of the term 160th Special Operations right. Aviation Regiment, you know? Right. So I got orders. My drill sergeant thumped me over the head because I didn't know who they were and I was in an aviation unit. And, um, <clears throat> and so Hunter Army Airfield, 3rd Battalion, was my first and only duty station. Um, so that's at Fort Stewart, right? It's Hunter Army Airfield is in, it's actually in Savannah. Oh, okay. Uh, yeah. Fort Stewart is, is it's near, is in Hinesville is near Savannah. Yeah. But gotcha. Hunter, Hunter is a diamond in the rough uh, duty station. It's a nice. beautiful spot to be. Yeah. That was my next question was going to be, if you had any place that the army sent to you, like as a journey, kind of like as a tourist within the army, would you say Savannah was the best place that you visited? Yeah. I mean, Savannah wins the best army installation awards a lot because it's a smaller installation. There's a few regular um, army aviation units there and some others. And then, um, uh, Ranger battalion and, and, uh, and SOAR are there. Mm-hmm. So, uh, first battalion Ranger regiments there that we support. And, um, and so it's, it's really, uh, really a diamond in the rough. And the fact that you can live off post there nearby and have downtown Savannah, you know, close to you and stuff, it was, it was a great right. spot to be. So, and we, so we spent the whole six years I was in, um, in Savannah. Wow. So that's pretty rare. I would say most people move around a lot in the yeah. army. So you were there from 2005 to 2011 then, right? right? Okay. Yeah. Um, and then I'm guessing though, as, almost as soon as you get there, these special operations units are deploying more or less constantly, right? So how long yeah. did it take from when you arrived um, at Hunter to the time when you first deployed? Uh, so I arrived at Hunter. Um, my first my first experience was to a memorial service uh, for Operation Red Wing, actually. Um, listeners may have heard of... Um, Mike Murphy and Marcus Luttrell, Lone Survivor, the movie mm-hmm. or the book or whatever. So when I when I arrived to the unit, uh, it was to memorial because we lost eight night stalkers that um, trying to rescue those guys off the off the mountain. So that was an eye opening experience for me. Going, wow, I just got selected to a unit that's like doing things that's that are crazy. You know, like what yeah. what does that mean for me? And I, I thought I was just going to be like fixing sheet metal on an airplane or an aircraft, and and I didn't know it was going to be this, you know? So to answer your question though, uh, I didn't deploy for probably nine months or so. I had a lot of training to do still. I had to get through mm-hmm. special operations enlisted qualification course, um, which, you know, in, in our, we call it green platoon. So I was like a snowbird rookie, like you're not doing anything, right? Like you can barely work on an aircraft until you're, until you're through, um, the the special operations qualification course and so what was the um, biggest difference between AIT and that special operations course were you doing the same kinds of things to a higher standard or you did did I have a no totally, totally different, different set of yeah it's it's special operations it's not it's not uh, it's special operations aviation oriented it's not it doesn't have anything to do with your job it doesn't have anything to do with um you know if you're a a helicopter mechanic, or if you're whatever, it doesn't matter. Yeah. What it is, is, um, marksmanship. It's advanced marksmanship. When we have FBI come in and teaching you, you know, certain skills and, um, it's medical training, it's combatives. It's, um, it's, it's basically the 
160th version of buds of, of seal training. I mean, it's, you know, it's, it's six weeks of hell. Mm -hmm. um, Did you go through that with other uh, aviation soldiers or was it uh, special operations soldiers from it's, all kinds it's of different only units. our unit, only yeah, your unit. Yeah. Okay. Only people who are selected or applied and got selected, mm -hmm. um, go through that. And you have to go through that in order to actually be in the unit. If you, if you go through the six week training and fail, then you're out, you're gone. You're, you know, needs of the army, you get new orders to third ID or wherever. Mm -hmm. Um, so, and that, so that was, again, had my wife from California born and raised moves to Savannah, which is a much different pace of life. And so I was sitting there in, um, in that, through that training going again, great. Now I need to perform again, like <laughs> be a gray man. Okay, cool. Um, and, and my, my rank at that time didn't matter because, you know, I was, wasn't the only E4, but I, again, didn't want to screw things up. I, mm -hmm. I, you know, I had a lot on the line and didn't want to have to go move. I felt like this was a good opportunity. So I tried really hard and I was distinguished honor graduate of special operations wow. uh, qualification course. And so that, that was great. Um, you know, less significant than the fact that I knew I was proficient in what the unit um, required of me to be able to administer medical assistance to my brothers who might need it. And um, you know, we're, in a special operations aviation unit, you have other things to consider. Like you're at a higher risk for captivity I mean, there's a higher price on your head for shooting down a big black helicopter with a refueling probe coming out the front, you know? Mm -hmm. So was there anything that you were most proud of in that training specifically? I'm wondering kind of what set you apart to make, make you the distinguished <laughs> honor grad. I set a course record on the, on the final ruck. Um, and was just feeling it Is that, that a, like a 12 mile ruck. Yeah. I think it was 13 miles or something. And, yeah. um, I did it and just, I don't know, something insane. Like I ran, yeah. like you got 60 pounds on your back and you're geared up and boots and everything. And I, 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 I don't even remember my time. I just remember them kind of looking at me like, did you cheat? You're already done. <laughs> yeah. Did you cheat? But I just ran, I ran yeah. the whole thing. And I, you know, how some days you're just like, you're feeling it. That right. was a day. I, I don't know if it was like a cup of coffee I had that was awesome or what, but I was feeling it. I, to the point where I threw my ruck down and I went back in and, and uh, ran back in with a bunch of other guys. So, mm -hmm. You were um, just pumped up that day. Yeah. It just was, it was just in a good groove. My, my feet were in a, a healed kind of state that day. I had pantyhose on and socks and all the necessary stuff you got to have to not, yeah. not to avoid all the blisters and all that, but so look, good combination. So anyway, yeah, that was a moment for me where I was like, okay, I'm in the right spot. Definitely. Um, so you, you're there, then you get into the unit. You, you said you're there for about nine months before you deploy. Uh, wh where was your first deployment to? So we were deploying, I mean, our, our unit has even to this day been deployed consistently since 2001. We have not come home. So there is no redeploying. It's, it's constant, you know, monthly rotators going to and from, you know, a dozen theaters of operation around the country, around the world. So my first deployment, actually deployments one through four were to Iraq. Um, mm -hmm. and then, uh, had a fifth deployment to, um, to Afghanistan and a non-combat deployment to South America. Okay. Where in South America? Uh, we were Chile. Chile. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. So, uh, starting with the combat deployments, were those, uh, 
is it three months, six months? I know the, the special operations does different. Yeah, um, it, it uh, varies from, it just depends on, on a lot of factors. It could be between one and three months. Um, that's, that's pretty typical deployment. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so and it, went- it just depends on the, on the mission, the people, the, you know, if you're moving locations, it could be different. If, I mean, there's so many variables, but generally three, a three month, like a 90 day window is a good uh, ballpark. Yeah. That was about what yours were about 90 yeah. days. And so you, you started to bring this up. Uh, when you went to Iraq, would you stay at the same base pretty much the whole time or were you moving around? Yeah, we would, um, we would mostly, and at this point I'm, I'm more so just doing my, what I was trained to do. Um, I'm just happened to be on a fob inside a fob, you know? Um, right. So it wasn't, I don't know. I, you know, we're, I'm wearing shorts and a t-shirt. Don't have to carry my weapon around. And it's a little bit more lax. I'm thankful for that because because you're in the special would, operations part of the fob. Yeah. And so we would yeah. go, so we would go, you know, on regular base, so to speak or whatever. Right. And, and we would have to carry a letter with us that said why we don't have, why we're not carrying our weapon. And we got called out on it all the time. And <laughs> Uh, I was going to say, I was always jealous. I was always jealous of the SF guys. They would roll up on like little, uh, almost like little, not RVs, but little like dune buggies kind of things Yeah. Yeah. with like no uniform, huge beard, just like, it seemed like it was a lot more fun in terms of, uh, yeah, it's definitely on deployment. Definitely, definitely different. Um, but yeah. And it's funny looking back on, man, we used to complain so much about, we'd go to, we'd just go to a different chow hall just for change of scenery. And we'd get such a hard time from like the, the guard at the, you know, like, do you clear your weapon? Wait, you don't have you a don't weapon? Have weapon. <laughs> where's your, where's your weapon? Yeah. About to, about to raise hell. But then I'm like. Did you ever do any kind of uh, training though with the SF guys in terms of using different kinds of weapons or doing other kinds of things uh, you wouldn't have normally done? Man, I mean, uh, once I was in, um, there's there's some schools, some shooting schools and stuff like that. I, I went to one time, but I, I wasn't um, like I wasn't a door gunner, you know. I wasn't a crew chief. I was at that point. I was part of the downed aircraft recovery team, and so I got to go out a few times um, when we had a hard landing and some things like that. Otherwise, um, my deployments were more making sure that I was managing, you know, the aircrafts. The capability to fly next mm-hmm. and things like that. So they're really focused in on the job. Yeah. Yep. Did you, uh, did you notice any trends from across your five deployments? Were there any times when you were working especially hard when there were a lot of either downed aircraft or damaged aircraft? Yeah. I mean, in our unit, we're every single night we're going out and, um, and picking up the next bad guy that just rose to the top of the list. Right. So it's, uh, it's, you know, your duty day starts in the afternoon and ends when the sun comes up. And um, whenever the aircraft get back, you got to reset and figure out what's wrong. And so it was, it was constantly like that. Um, mm-hmm. uh, so yeah, not, nothing in particular, I guess, other than just, you know, when you're deploying that it's heads down, there's seven days a week work. There's no, there's, you're working three months. You're not, mm-hmm. <laughs> there's no, there's no downtime for you to, to hang out, you know? Totally. Did anything stick out in terms of uh, any aircraft in particular that took like a really kind of strange damage or unexpected or? Yeah, we had one. Um, it was pretty interesting. 
with the first down aircraft recovery that I went out on, which by the way, is a, for a guy who had not been outside the wire yet, uh, mm-hmm. flying, flying to an aircraft that had had a hard landing, a uh, very hard landing. It was a pretty frightening experience. Um, to like the first time you go out there and you realize, I mean, seeing tracers fly by the aircraft mm-hmm. and, and then flares going off, I almost crapped my pants the first time that happened, you know, and, and on, on the, on comms, they're like, yeah, don't worry about it. It's not, um, it's not part like that. You could, they could go and just blow that guy away right now. Right. They could find him because we can see him. We've got MVGs. We can see the guy, but right. it's not what we're doing right now. Just you know, it's not worth going after. It's not worth it. They're just yeah. like, they, they hear a helicopter flying around in the black. They can't see it. And then they just shoot up in the air and um, sometimes it hits, sometimes it doesn't. But um, so anyway, but it was that was disorienting to be yeah. fire around you. And- yeah. And, and to see, to see the aircraft flares go off, you're kind of like, what was that? And they're, Oh, it's RPG or whatever. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but past beyond that is, you know, landing at a, at a, like a farm, like a field in the middle of nowhere and, like trying to assess the damage on an aircraft where the, the tail of the aircraft is hanging on by one spar, you know, it's like trying to use ratchet straps to get the thing back to the, back to the base to see if it'll fly. And what kind of an aircraft was this? Cause I know that special operations, they used Kiowas extensively back then, or was this a, was this a Chinook that was like carrying no, we, troops? No, we've, we use, um, Blackhawks, okay. little birds. You may be confusing that with little birds. We, okay. There the, we go. Yeah. M H six and a H six. Um, uh, oh, okay. Yeah. What's the difference between that and a Kiowa? Cause that a is Kiowa. A Kiowa is a, an OH 58. That is, okay. uh, like a bell two Oh six type of airframe. Mm-hmm. And, um, Little birds are AHX Cayuse, which is a smaller airframe, two-seater airframe. And then you can put platforms. The, the MH6 has platforms on the sides where um, special operators can sit on the, basically on the skids, wow. just above the skids. And yeah, um, and, uh, yeah so that's, that's what those two things are. So what were you going it's to a Black Hawk. on that? A yeah. Black Hawk. This okay. was a, we, had, we had a third battalion. We had Blackhawks and Chinooks. And um, first and second, or first battalion had Little Birds. So, mm-hmm. but yeah, this one was a Blackhawk that had a, yeah, hit its tail pretty hard. And then it actually dug the probe into the ground. So really kind of a gnarly hit. And then um, I believe this, the pilot seat stroked fully out and he popped his head through the greenhouse window as well. So... Did he survive? Or yeah, every, everyone yeah, was okay. Everyone aircraft landed and and uh, crazy as it was, that aircraft wobbled its way back, still flew um, again after that. I mean, I, the resilience of these airframes is insane. So, yeah, that's incredible. And that was on your first deployment, so this was somewhere in Iraq? Yeah, yeah middle of nowhere Iraq, yeah. Was it shot down or was it... Uh, just some, uh, no, I, I believe failure. that one was a, a lift issue, you know, mm-hmm. not having enough thrust in the dust type of thing. Mm-hmm. Did you, were you ever on a fob, uh, that got attacked or mortared or what was that? Like? Yeah. I mean, every day <laughs> the, yeah. I was on a, uh, Balad air base is, is also known as uh Mortaritaville. Um, <laughs> it's just every, every day, every yeah. day of barrage of, of mortars and people, you know, the, whoever's trying to, lob them in there they're not aiming at anything um they're just trying to do damage and you know cause a ruckus or whatever so they'll right launch some mortars and run and by the time the regular army can scramble apaches or whatever they're already gone you know yeah Yeah, definitely um what was the food like on the fob any good it was great yeah 
It was good. Yeah. Do you I have mean, memories of like, so you went to, did you go to four different ones in Iraq and then one in Afghanistan? Do you no, have any was, memories of like your favorite fob or like the favorite uh, dining facility out there? Yeah. I mean, I, I, I liked our uh, dining facility within our bubble, you know, I mean, mm-hmm. cra- crab legs. And I actually, it's funny. I used to um, drink non-alcoholic beer just to like every, I don't know, once a once every couple of weeks and just be like, dude, this is so good. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Yeah. I was like, I swear there's like a 0.5% or 0.05% alcohol in your, I swear. If you I can chug feel it. like 20 of them. Yeah. <laughs> you might feel a buzz. Yeah, yeah totally. Yeah. yeah, yeah like we, non-alcoholic Heineken or something. Mm-hmm. Um, what about, uh, your, the other people in the unit with you? So you're in, uh, this smaller fob within a, a larger fob. What was your team like that you worked with? Yeah, I mean, with like the dining facility in a special operations uh, unit, you would you can imagine the um, interesting collection of humans that go in and out of there. It's sure. you know, uh, guys with beards and guys that are just in civilian clothes, and you don't know what's going like who you know. I don't know, it, but it, but no one cares. It's just like it's 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 totally a, just a different world than. You know, like I said earlier, we just for a change of scenery, we'd go on the regular army base and it's all ACUs. You know, like all right. you see are, you know, the weapons slung and it's uniforms. Very clear what people's ranks are. Yeah, totally. Yeah. And, and, but normally day to day, no one really cares. It's like you just, you go and uh, for us, it's like just go do your job and you know what your internal hierarchy is and how you work. And that's all you mm-hmm. really have to just heads down and get the job done, you know. So, what, so who was your, uh, immediate boss would that have been like a uh, sergeant first class uh, yeah, they, were yeah. They also a mechanic or were they like uh it's just some sf guy who was assigned to no it would be it's all internal yeah mm-hmm. we would all we would work um the only time we would interact with um any of the other groups is you know for a mission brief or something like that but day to day yeah it's it's your direct direct line supervisor is next rank up or mm-hmm. maybe a first sergeant platoon sergeant whoever yeah um so what was uh did you notice any differences between Iraq and Afghanistan? So was uh was Afghanistan was the last of your deployments? Yeah, Afghanistan, I had already actually uh accepted a civilian job when I deployed uh for the last time, but uh no, so I had uh I'd done three trips to Iraq, one to Afghanistan, and then accepted a job in the civilian world and knew I was ETSing at that point. And then I went back to Iraq one for one final time. Uh, But but the difference um, for me, I felt like Afghanistan was much more uh, wild West, Um, Mm -hmm. a lot less infrastructure, less rules. Actually Mm -hmm. interesting uh, thing that I'll tell you is uh, I got a speeding ticket in both Afghanistan and Iraq. Wow. Which, that might be a record of some kind, maybe. It, uh, for first one, I was. Uh, it's probably my second deployment. Yeah. Was, and we were driving a Toyota Hilux, uh, just a you know basic white pickup. It's basically like a um, diesel version of the Toyota Tacoma. They don't sell mm-hmm. them in the U.S., but outside of the U.S., they do. They're amazing trucks. They have like Jeep Willys tires on them, so just super durable, awesome trucks. Yeah, you see a and, lot of Hiluxes. Uh, yeah. So I'm driving that and. I look in my rearview mirror. I was just on our way to chow or something. And, um, some air force E4 pulls me over or something and comes over and he's all confused. Cause he doesn't know why the hell we don't have our weapons, why we're in t-shirts and shorts and stuff. And, and he wrote me a ticket 
And I was like, what am I supposed to do with this? Yeah. And he's like, give it to your commander. So <laughs> went and gave it to my Sergeant major and, and uh, Sergeant major just looked at it and just shredded it. He's just like, just, he's like, okay, uh, slow down. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. Like, All right. Weird. Um, and then in Afghanistan, uh, I was driving on the flight line back from Chow one day and I was driving this, uh, party, but we called it a party bus, but it was just a sweet old, I don't know, European or Asian bus, uh, was how we all kind of went together and I was driving it and it was left-hand stick shift, right-hand drive, you know, wow. and I'm driving down the flight line and I get pulled over on the flight line and the guy's like, dude, did you see the Canadians last week? They, they ran and we all saw it cause it's clear as day, but the, they ran one of their vehicles under one of the predators, the, uh, the UAVs. Drone. Yeah. Yeah. They, I don't know how <laughs> you, how do you do that, yeah. but they ran it underneath the wing and, and actually, so then the, the predators on the flight line, like up on its edge and there's all these police everywhere and investigating. And I mean, imagine that, that guy, that guy got fired for sure. But yeah. Like we need people to go slower on the flight line. I'm like, all right, gotcha. So, <laughs> and same thing. They gave you a ticket. And said, yeah, they gave yeah. me a ticket, and and my my first sergeant was on in the bus with me. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. uh, you know, no big deal. But yeah, that's funny, funny thing, funny story. So, where were you in Afghanistan when I I was there in 2011 in RC East? Uh, so we would come into Bagram. And then we were closer to uh, Jalalabad, was like yeah. the closest city. Uh, yeah, we were down in Kandahar. Okay, so yeah. southern. We had, RC we had a, one of our battalions was in Jabad and also Bagram, so we were mm-hmm. we had elements all over. Um, but yeah, I was I was in Kandahar. Did you go off the base at all there, or was it only in Iraq that you were doing these kind of? Uh, yeah, yeah, I went off. Missions? I went yeah. off the base there too. We were about only about four kilometers or something from Pakistan, I believe, at that mm-hmm. at that location. So wow. Yep. Anything memorable from that Afghanistan deployment that set it apart? I like, mean, so when you say it's more like the Wild West, I'm trying to imagine it's like just less urban, more like kind of wild landscape or. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, it, to me, I mean, when we fly, when we fly, I looking down and just seeing, I just remember seeing um, like goat herders in the middle of like, you look around and you can't see anything anywhere. Yeah. And there's like a random herd of goats with a dude walking <laughs> and you're like, what, what, like, what, is this the same planet we live right. on? Like, wh- yeah. how does it? So you know, it's 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 that it's times like that where I realize how easy it is to to like rally a village against foreign invaders. You know, like they've never seen a newspaper. They maybe don't have, know how to read. They've never seen a television. They don't. They can't put together their own you know, their own concepts of what's right and wrong and who's trying to help what or whatever. You know, and our perspective is we're trying to help and we see the help we're, we're giving, but it's easy, you know, it's easy to know how, um, propaganda when used right can, can really hurt what we're trying to do because these people don't have access to newspapers and news and TV. And so like, think about crazy technological forces coming in and invading the U S we'd be like, yeah, you, know, you can only any... imagine the level of isolation of some of these villages and like, yeah. really, it seemed like it would depend on which Valley you were in, but each yeah. Valley could be you know, almost completely isolated from the valley right next Ex- to it. Especially that topography is ridiculous. So, I mean, mm-hmm. some of these people, they're not, they're not interacting, you know, so. Right. 
Yeah. yeah, crazy. So did you fly a lot in, uh, did you fly more in Afghanistan than you did in Iraq? Like, would you say there were, no, you probably know, more no? in Iraq? Yeah. Really? Not a whole hmm. lot. What was your favorite, uh, aircraft to fly in? I, I like the Blackhawk a little bit more, uh, maneuverable. Just feel like in a Chinook is just like bedtime. You know? Right. It's yeah. Like, <laughs> it's just like time to go to bed, sleepy vibrations. Did, did you have a preference of which one you'd like to work on better or was it all, yeah uh definitely wouldn't be the chinook the chinook is just a big old grease bomb i yeah. don't know how i don't know how they fly honestly <laughs> like <laughs> yeah um so, so yeah, you prefer to work hawk. on and and ride in the black hawk yeah definitely nice. cool okay so let's talk about getting out so you said you you had gotten a job already when you still had to go and deploy again what was that process like what made you decide to start looking for opportunities outside the military yeah i mean i decided to ets uh, to transition out because um unfortunately one of the things that came along with my job was i was selected as the burial detail ncoic so every time we'd lose a, a buddy in combat unless they were going to arlington um we had to kind of put down what we we're doing and practice carrying the casket and you know the gun volley and you know we had to go out to their hometown and bury them and listen to their parents wailing and just like man talk about a a, a tough duty and so yeah. i'm sitting there we lost in the six years i served we lost 19 um night stalkers and it was i i was just like man you know I, I, this is an amazing community. Amazing. My career progression was insane. I mean, I was a, I was a, an E six in four years. That's the fastest time in service you can make E six mm-hmm. and um, it would have, would have been E nine in record time too, I'm sure. Um, right. And actually I got selected for OCS officer candidate school and um, then denied orders because I did not, uh, had buddies that are pilots in third ID and they're like, dude, just stay. And if you're not, if this isn't a career move for you. Do not go to the regular army right now and be a, a Blackhawk yeah. pilot in, in third ID or something. Just stay mm-hmm. where you're at. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, and I did you got think about doing that. Did you think about doing the OCS route? And then you're, I mean, I applied, I got, I got yeah. eye surgery. I mm-hmm. got, I, I took my, my a fast and aced that and got selected. Um, and at the time special operations had a OCS direct select program, the army did. And I was, I was selected by Lieutenant general Wagner to go through a direct select through USASOC um, selection program f- for whatever I want. I chose aviation because uh, that's what I was doing currently. Mm-hmm. And so I did get selected and had to deny or I had orders um, in September of 2006 to go to OCS um, and, wow. and, and into aviation and fly. But I, I made the decision because my wife and I talked about it and um, decided that I, I couldn't commit to another eight years. You know, like I couldn't commit right. to just I didn't know. I didn't know yeah. if I, if it was something I had in me. I didn't know if like I was going to. I mean, you'd already gone through a ton of changes, right? Just yeah. into the military and moving. Yeah, and, and, then you're and in- think about this too. It's like if people, you know, people, your listeners know, um, or, or maybe they don't, some of them, but you go through all this training so far, you deploy and then you come home. It's not, you're not just sitting on your hands. Like I went to Navy SEER school. I went to airborne school, pathfinder school, air assault school, mm-hmm. like it's school after school. So you're, you're constantly moving. You're then you're burying your buddy, then you're deploying, then you're, right. you know, doing these things and like, it's a lot. And yeah. so it's not, it's not that I couldn't mentally 
or physically commit like to, to, to do it because I was doing it and I loved what I did, but I didn't, I was looking forward to the future and going like, is this a 20 year thing for me? Mm-hmm. And if not, like I had my first son and I was like, I, I gotta, I gotta reconsider this, you know? Right. Yeah. So, so how old was your son then when you got out? Still pretty young. Uh, he was one when I one, got out. Wow. Yeah. And yeah. that was really, that was really the thing. I mean, mm-hmm. I, um, I think it was mostly burying enough of my friends and going, he needs, my son needs a father you know? totally. and anything could yeah. happen when you get out too. But I was seeing a lot of accidents happening that normally wouldn't happen in civilian life. Right. Yeah. That makes sense. So, so what was that first job that you got, uh, when you left yeah. the army? So, um, I had just finished a master's in aeronautical science again, just sticking with the, the aviation theme, you know? Mm-hmm. And, um, so I was applying, and this is 2010, I was applying to Boeing, Lockheed, Sikorsky, Northrop Grumman, Bell, all of the major aviation aeronautic companies out there. Mm-hmm. And uh, in 2010, they were all laying people off. And, uh, and so they said, you know, with your clearance and your experience and your education, a couple of years ago, you'd have been perfect. You know, we, anyone would have picked you up and you'd have been good. So I realized very quickly that I was, that was not an option for me right now. I'm kind of glad it wasn't to be honest right now, but, um, so yeah, it's always of, funny how some things don't work and you're like, that was actually a good thing. Yeah. That Cause I would have been, I would have been riding a desk. I mean, I would have, honestly, it would have been a number again and just, I don't know. So, um, a friend of a friend contacted me one day and just said, I've got this sales job and, uh, are you interested? It'll get you back to the San Francisco Bay area where your wife's from. And I was like, all right, let's do it. Let's do it. That was, that was a blessing in disguise. And, um, glad I was able to transition successfully and, and then, you know, work on finding my passion afterwards. Mm-hmm. So how long then after you left, did you start this new project, active duty, uh, passive income. Can you just maybe give us a, a snapshot of what that is and then yeah. uh, how you came to start doing that during your transition uh, out of the military? Yeah. So I came back to the Bay Area and was trying to figure out, I had a rental property in Savannah. We we, we lived in for four years and had to, had to convert it to a rental because we couldn't sell it. We used the VA loan and it was 100% leveraged and just didn't make sense to sell it. But we could rent it and make a little bit of a profit, like 80 bucks a month. Mm-hmm. And so uh, so comfortably, you know, with that, uh, we moved back to the San Francisco Bay area, but I'm going, how am I going to like the Bay area? Like the cheapest thing I could find at the time was 500,000. So how am I going to now do this? So thankfully I had the VA loan and cause I didn't have a hundred thousand dollars to put down 20% right. down on a property, sure. but I certainly had 0% down. <laughs> so, Thank so, you, uh, so all I could do, I mean, I could, I could afford the payment. I had to, you have to qualify for the loan, but I used the VA loan and bought something at 500,000. Two years later, it was worth six ninety, and um, we sold it just because we were like looking around and watching the market kind of go up. And uh, we ended up doing that three times in the Bay Area. Um, we call it live-in flipping, where you just buy a house and it's either a market appreciation or a forced appreciation if you renovate it or whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh, just either way, increasing the value of the property and then selling it. And um, if you live in it for two years, you don't have to pay capital gains tax. So uh, okay. So we did that a few times and I kind of call that now my capital building phase, but it was also a discovery phase. I was intentionally going to uh, real estate courses and just really trying to figure out like, I see people making money doing this, but how, like, what is flipping? What is apartment investing? What is, you know, buy and hold? Like 
I yeah, just how was, do you actually do all these things? Yeah, I was, so I, yeah. I paid for some education um, and paid for some coaching and read a ton of books. And I connected with some buddies. Like one of my buddies was an apartment syndicator, which I do now. We buy apartments. And I just asked him, what, what is this thing you're doing? And I see you on a plane you know, on a flying on a private jet, like, what are you doing? You know? And, <laughs> and I went to college with him. And so I knew him and he goes, look, if I, if, if I just give you a quick example, if you invested a hundred thousand dollars into a deal with me five years ago on this last asset we just sold, I would have turned that hundred thousand into 290 in five years. And I just said, all right, let me write a check and let's do that again. You know? <laughs> yeah. And so, but I, it was my first time I realized that like, there's this whole world that is not taught out there. It's not sure. the military's job right. to teach financial literacy. It's not the military's job to do anything but teach you how to war fight and do it really well and whatever, right? So now fast forward, just through connecting with people and starting to dabble into real estate, um, I connected with uh, Mark Yon and Mike, my partners at ADPI, uh, the co-founders. So the three of us started building a community. That's it. It is active duty, passive income. It was a Facebook group. Um, and we were just, it was like a hundred people and we're like, let's just share some value. Cause like document our experience. That's it. Right. And just and sharing then, ideas with other people yeah. who are getting involved in the real estate market at the time. Exactly. And mm -hmm. then, um, Markian started what now is a number one best-selling book on Amazon. Uh, we added to it and wrote this uh, book called military house hacking and it teaches veterans um, kind of how to do some of the principles I talked about, but using your VA loan, you know, and just thinking about financial literacy, like it, just thinking about, first of all, thinking about it, you know, what does it mean? We talk totally. about good debt versus bad debt. We talk about assets versus liabilities. We yeah. talk about using the VA loan and house hacking. We talk about all the strategies that we've used now. So I think so that's then, super valuable because you do always hear these horror stories in the military of people on their own for the first time and they get a car loan and the interest rate is 27% 20, yeah, or something totally. like that. Right. And why do you, you think you hear these stories again and again, there are people preying on young soldiers. So it sounds like you're kind of trying to counteract that whole right. thing. Stop that in the bud. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, why do you think there's a, a pawn shop, a cash advance place and a car dealership outside of every military installation? Right. right? Yeah. I mean, yeah. it's it, they're. I mean, God bless them. They're making money and they're doing what their business model does, but you know, it's, it's specifically in a spot where, um, where military members are, are coming on and off, get off of base, you know, targeting. Yeah, them. So totally. anyway, so going forward, um, we just started creating content and adding more and more value, but more importantly, listening to the community and the community said we need education. And so we built a 85 lesson, uh, military real estate investing Academy, uh, very, very robust. And mm -hmm. um, then we built a 20 module uh, military multifamily academy because we we invest in, we buy multifamily apartments now. Um, sure. And, Are these all online modules? Did you yeah, use like a specific right. format to do the online course? Yeah. Yep. So um, we use, we use Kajabi for the structure um, for the, to house the, um, the information and mm -hmm. Uh, the courses. And, and, th and so those courses have masterminds that are, people are killing it. And the amazing thing is the inherent um, trust that we all have and relatability. Uh, when you have a community of veterans talking about one thing, uh, it's amazing to watch it grow. And so we, we are active duty, passive income is the premier real estate investing education platform and community for the military. We're where the military and real estate investors collide. We've found that niche and we've built uh, one amazing platform. 
and so you, the next uh, do you focus on buying properties to rent them to veterans or is that just a subset of what you do no um so we don't we don't do any of of that piece of it um mm -hmm. what we do is so to explain best um a military member um there's 1.4 mil, you know million active duty service members right now. And they PCS, they move from one duty station to the next. Right. And like me and like my team, we wish we knew that we, when we buy that hundred percent leveraged VA loan, new construction place at my next duty station, we should have considered that a future potential rental property because that's, what's going to be. Mm -hmm. So how do you run those numbers? What is the 1% rule? What is PITI PMMV? Like, what are these things that that when you're buying a property, you need to calculate to make sure that when you move to your next duty station, because the army or military doesn't care about what your finances look like, you're moving when they say you're moving. Right. So, so run those numbers and make sure that the property you're buying is going to be a great asset for you down the road and mm -hmm. be smart about that purchase because it's going to be a rental or you're going to sell it. And if you buy people. it right, right. Yeah. And if you buy it right, you, maybe you could sell it if, if that's what you mm -hmm. want to do. So then we were listening to the community. So we had that kind of education and mindset of like buy right. And like, let's teach you how to do that. But then they said, well, we need lending and we need a real estate brokerage and we need an insurance company. And so we started adding services that are buy vets for vets with that mentality of like, like our real estate agents are vetted. Like they are education first. It's if you're a military real estate investing, um, uh, you know, an ADPI member or ADPI realtor, you are focused on, am I buying right? And um, so that's just a great thing to, to be able to say that we provide, but um, certainly the financial services, I mean, our mortgage branch is amazing. And uh, like I said, buy vets for vets and, um, and it's an ESOP. It's so everyone, it's a hundred percent employee owned stock option uh, branch. So all of our loan officers own the branch and um that's outstanding. Yeah. So how do folks get in in contact with you? Do you have a preferred way for people to reach out? Yeah. Um, so people can reach out. I'll just give you my email. It's eric at activedutypassiveincome.com or I'm on Instagram at Real Eric Upchurch or Facebook. You can find me all over. I'll be smiling. You see my face, Eric Upchurch. <laughs> Strangely enough, there's like 10 Eric Upchurches out there. So, but um, nice. yeah. So uh, yeah, glad, glad to take any uh, questions from anybody. So that's great. Well, thanks so much for being on the podcast. Uh, I know you have to run, but really appreciate it. Uh, Eric Upchurch, former member of the 160th and now co-founder of ADPI, Active Duty Passive Income. Thanks a lot, Eric. Thanks very much. Thanks to Eric for sharing his story. If you'd like to learn more about getting into real estate, definitely check out Active Duty Passive Income. And if you want to learn more about our program, you can reach out to me, at randy at herohut.org. And as always, you can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter by following at herohutorg.